Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about about an ephah, of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, 
the man is our close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Blessed, he said, besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Good morning, y'all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Andrew, uh, and welcome again to Axe Church Kyle. Um, we are in our second week of a series on Ruth. Um, we called it kind of a pocket gospel last week. There's so much packed into this. This is such a rich story. It's not just about, um, uh, you know, feminism or chivalry or uh, or immigration or anything like that. A lot of things we want to read into this book, but but really, uh, this book, along with Scripture, is a reflection of God. It reflects the story of, of Jesus. So you have Ruth, this young lady from Moab, um, a nation of Israel's enemies, uh, who married into an Israelite family, her mother-in-law, Naomi, now a widow, Ruth, now a widow, have been forsaken, seemingly forsaken by God. Um, their husband, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has died. Uh, her Naomi's sons have died, Ruth's husband being one of them. So we do not have a great hopeful picture for these two. It's not really a matter of how will they survive, but how long will they survive. Um, and we heard last week, that throughout this series, we're looking at this theme, Jesus turns our, the end, into his glorious unfolding story. Jesus turns our, the end, into part of his glorious unfolding story. That's what we're going to be coming back to every week in this series. But last week we saw that he befriends us in our forsakenness. In our sin, in our brokenness, he befriends us and he lavishes the riches of heaven on us. Now, um, therefore, our ministry in Christ is to befriend the forsaken, right? It's, it's about relationships. It's about clinging with one another with whom God has declared, uh, righteous. So, uh, we reveal the glory and story of Jesus by befriending the forsaken. Today, we look at a new chapter in Ruth's story, and we're going to be talking about this. When we give to the poor, we reveal the glory and story of Jesus. When we give to the poor, we reveal the glory and story of Jesus, this unfolding story that he's, uh, that he's latched into our lives. Now, this giving to the poor, this is one of the simplest, most straightforward, and most recurring commands in Scripture. And yet somehow we've made it into this massive, Moral dilemma. You know, should I give to the poor? How should I give to the poor? Am I enabling them? What are they going to spend the money on? Um, do they deserve it? Are they actually poor or just posing as poor? Are they lazy? Like, all of these questions, we surround this very basic and simple command of God, give to the poor. It's echoed, it's echoed through the Old Testament, through the New Testament. It is a theme 
of God's heart. It's not just a chapter of his story. This is part of his heart. God binds himself to the poor. In uh, Proverbs 14, it says that when we bless the poor, it's like giving a gift to God. When we give a gift to the poor, it's like gifting God. Whereas if we slap the poor in the face, it's like slapping God in the face. He binds himself to the poor. So, for that reason, he built into his law, and he's establishing Israel's economy, and he's establishing how they'll operate as a nation. He builds into their law provisions for the poor. He says, when you glean in your fields, when you harvest and you glean, in other words, when, uh, you know, when you're harvesting and you're picking up these pieces of grain, leave some behind at the edges of the field on purpose for the poor. Don't try to get every single thing. Don't pinch pennies until there is nothing left for anyone else. Intentionally leave some behind. God is building into his law provision for the poor. Now, we don't know how often this was obeyed, but we know it wasn't often enough that Ruth and Naomi could assume if I go out to somebody's field, there's going to be something there for me. She couldn't assume that. In fact, she said, I'm going to try to find somebody with who finds favor in me. I'm going to find somebody who will let me glean in their field, in other words. Somebody who doesn't kick me out. And here, as quote-unquote luck would have it, she finds Boaz. In fact, Scripture makes very clear, like she was not seeking out Boaz. Um, by chance, she chanced upon a field, right? That, this is the literal Scripture. This is... This is not on purpose, okay? Now we see God's hand kind of behind it in the background, but this she was not seeking this out. She chanced upon Boaz's field, and what she found there was not only permission to glean, not only permission to, to pick up his stuff that he leaves behind, but she gets water, she gets lunch, she gets leftovers for her mother-in-law, she gets an ephah of grain. Do you know what an ephah is? It's like it's like the orange buckets in Home Depot, you know, the five-gallon buckets. Strapped that on her back and took it home. It's a lot of grain, all right? She got a lot of stuff to take home. And an invitation back. Keep coming back. You're safe here. You have stuff here for you. She is prospering at Boaz's hand. But prosperity is more than stuff. It's more than physical relief, especially when God is where God is concerned. It's not just getting stuff, material prosperity. It's more than physical relief. So imagine, if you would, the story going another way. Boaz gives her all that stuff. He gives her grain. He, you know, he has her workers, uh, has his workers uh, put this ephah of grain in a sack, gives it to her. He even gives her some water and says, you know, there you go. Um, he doesn't ask her who she is. He doesn't get to know her at all. There's no connection. He just, he's like, okay, you're here for some stuff. Here you go. There you go. Sends her on her, on her way. This is not prosperity. You have, uh, you have relief. You have this, this physical relief. But what's happening is it, it this handing down, um, without this relational aspect, it's reinforcing the status breaks, the economic status divisions. It's reinforcing that, right? You come to me, I give to you. It reinforces dependency. It reinforces a very dangerous power dynamic being established. 
because you have, when one person is in lack and feeling inadequate, they start feeling like they need the other person in power, and it gets to be kind of dangerous. But this relief without relationship is superiority, not prosperity. Relief without relationship establishes superiority, which also makes it ripe for abuse. I don't know if y'all have been in the news too much this week. There have been some um, decimating scandals emerging from the Catholic Church. Um, Priests assaulting children, priests assaulting nuns, because the dynamic that has been established is you come to me, I give you what you need, I have what you need, so you are dependent on me, and and, and it makes it makes a situation right for abuse. Now, I'm not saying like every priest in the Catholic Church abuses people, obviously, but it makes it easier to do so. And um, when when Pope Francis spoke out about this, there was this air of, yeah, you know, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna go away overnight. I don't remember his exact words, but essentially, like, yeah, this is this is not something that can just be eradicated. In other words, it's kind of like, well, this is the way things are. And, and it makes it very, it, it makes it easier to continue down that path if this is the way things are. And we are also prone to acknowledge the fact, yeah, there's bad stuff in the world and people have tragedy, but that's the way things are. And less and less gets done about it. We, we acknowledge the tragedy, but we don't do anything lots of time. Now, imagine it the other way, where Ruth comes to Boaz he gets to know, oh, what's your name? Where are you from? Oh, I, I heard you were here with Naomi. You're her daughter-in-law. That's great. We're, we're uh, Naomi's family. You know, we're, he gets to know her. He gets really close. Um, all right, well, you know, have a good day. I hope everything is good. I hope everything goes well for you here. Um, sorry, I don't have anything to give you. Really? Like, not only does God's law say, like, yeah, you do have something to give me, like, by law. But, really? A lot of times, like, if Boaz was prone to miss his excess, I guarantee you Ruth would not be. We can be prone to miss how much excess we have. The people who have not do not miss that excess. They see it. And what does that do? When, 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 if someone is sitting there hoarding a bunch of stuff and got their arms full, uh, you, you know, and you say, well, can I, can I have a, can I have just a piece? Can I have a, a bite? Can I have whatever? Just a sliver? No, you know, I need this. Okay, that, that breeds resentment. Okay, that breeds a breakdown in relationship. Let me, um, put it another way. Right, so I'll let James put it another way. Um, James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. This is not like something that we can easily gloss over and say, well, yeah, we should 
we should do better. It's not going to get fixed overnight. That's true. But there's got to be some immediacy. There has to be some repentance. There has to be some major heart reconstruction here. Now, if we have that relationship, if, if you go back to that reimagining of the story of Ruth where Boaz had the relationship with her, but he wouldn't give her any relief, we call that hypocrisy. Relief with, or relationship without relief is hypocrisy. Relief without relationship is superiority. Both are damaging to relationships. Now, if we say like, well, you know, I, I can, I can cheer on Boaz. Boaz is a champion in the story, and I would do the same thing for Ruth if that was me. If I had the means to do so, I would do it. If I had the opportunity to do so, I would do it. I, my heart is with Boaz on this. She needed something. He was there. So why don't we? Why don't we? Why do we skip it so often and, and, and we make these objections? Um, Jonathan Edwards wrote, uh, phenomenal theologian, um, wrote hundreds of years ago a sermon called The Duty of Charity to the Poor. Okay? And in this, he outlined 11 objections of his time that people often made. Here's why I don't give to the poor. And each and every one, he established an answer um, to those things. And if I could summarize them, they either boil down to the golden rule, do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you, or the example of Christ. Right? This is what Christ has done for you, therefore this is what we do for our neighbor. Right? It usually falls in one of those two camps. But I'll summarize just a couple here because um, they still get echoed. They still get echoed in our time and place. And some of the most common might be, well, they don't actually need anything more. Right? They don't need it. They're still surviving. They're getting by. They don't need it. Okay? Do you only care for yourself when you're on death's doorstep? Do you wait that long to care for yourself? Probably not. Why would we wait that long to care for our neighbor? They don't deserve anything. They would misuse it. They, uh, they brought this situation on themselves. I don't know their circumstances. I don't know how they got poor. Therefore, I don't want to help them. This enabling idea, right? Or they're receiving government assistance already. They don't need my, my money. Um, all of these things, uh, Edwards brings up as well. But again, if we're applying it to ourselves, any single one of us in this room, if we had a need, we say, I, I need help. I, you know, I need some utility assistance. I need help with the medical bill. Um, I, whatever. Anyone else in this room, if they had free transparent access to your purchases, could probably say like, well, then you probably shouldn't be spending 20 bucks at Taco Bell, right? Or Chick-fil-A or whatever. Or, uh, or how about you get rid of your cable or your Netflix subscription, right? Let me find some money for you. You, you don't deserve this yet. Why would we put that on somebody else if we're not ready to have someone put that on us? Right? The whole point is not to wait until somebody has earned it. We, that's not when we give. That's not what charity is. And yet we still feel entitled to ask things of each other. Right? We should receive people requesting help from us as well. Another one that, that, man, this might be the one that I personally hear the most. Um, I don't have enough. I don't have enough to give somebody else. 
I barely have enough to get by myself. It's funny. It doesn't matter if you are poor, middle class, rich. It doesn't matter where you are on the economic, in the economic stratosphere. That refrain is echoed everywhere. I would give more if I had more, but I just don't have it. I can't swing it. We never do. We never have enough. We never have as much as we would want. But somehow, they always have enough in our eyes. Right? In our eyes, we never have quite enough. They always have just enough. Meanwhile, you look at Christ, who gives beyond measure, who gives when we don't even know what we need, much less how how much we need. We don't deserve it. We uh, we have more than enough. We have more than enough than than we would ever need in this in this life. And he keeps pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. He gives beyond measure. So, and I don't just mean like material stuff. That's not. That's not how the prosperity of God works. You know, when God enriches us, it's not just a bunch of stuff. You know, a lot of times you'll you'll hear, I'm so blessed, or they're so blessed, or hashtag blessed, and you know, Instagram of your food, or whatever. Like, you know, this is my this this thing is is my blessing, is is my gift. That's not how God's kingdom works. His prosperity goes way beyond provision. All right? So God establishes something else. Relief. Relief plus relationships is the prosperity of God. Relief plus relationships is the prosperity of God. See, our economics works in terms of worthiness. Are they worthy of receiving that? Am I worthy of receiving that? Have I earned it? Have they earned it? Then we give it, or then we're okay with getting it. That's not how God works. We base our system on worthiness. God bases his on worth. Not worthiness, worth. Human nature, we, we are prone to think that if we have nothing of worth, it's difficult to see worth in ourselves. And this is how we see Ruth interacting with Boaz. You know, we... My, if you look on the surface and you see, wow, you know, this guy was so generous giving her grain and lunch and water and a place at this table, all this stuff. Like, he, he, he's given her so much. But if you read between the lines, there's so much more there than just the physical relief. There's so much more there than just the provision. Ruth, you can tell in her interactions, she feels vulnerable. She feels unsure of herself. She feels undeserving. She feels self-conscious in this new context in Israel. She's a Moabite in Israel. She has no husband. Um, she feels all of these things that would make her vulnerable. And in that situation, she not only expects to encounter abuse, but she might even feel like she deserves it if we take it a step further. A lot of times when we expect abuse, we might even feel like it should happen to us. I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve this stuff. I got to take the bad with the good. The big deal about Boaz is that he doesn't give to Ruth because he's because she's worthy. 
He gives to Ruth because she is of worth to him. So this protection that he gives her, right? She's worried about getting assaulted when she goes out in the field. He gives her protection and communicates to her that she is worth protecting. He gives her water, but this, this is how it works in that day and age, like go and draw water. His men were the ones who drew the water. His men drew the water for her. Not the other way around, which is how it would typically work. His workers were serving her water. When he gave her lunch, it's not that he just gave her some food. He, the owner of all of this, the big shot, served her at his own hand. And then sent her home with a doggy bag for her mom. He doesn't make her earn her place. He doesn't wait until she is worthy of what he has to give. He values her. God makes margins for the marginalized. God makes margins for the marginalized. And so must we. So if your calendar is filled up, if your account is overdrawn, you have no margins. You can easily say, well, I don't have anything to give. That's probably true. But could you have something to give? Probably. Right? It's a matter of taking inventory of our lives. We create margins because God has shown us how important that is. We take inventory on how many hours we spend on Netflix or how many unnecessary bills we're paying, how many cups of coffee or how many times we eat out. We, we get a handle on that stuff not to fulfill God's law necessarily, but because we have to have a heart for the people who need the margins. Instead, we block ourselves from people in need and we call it self-care. I deserve this. Treat yourself, right? Every day. God is in the margins with the marginalized. So you and I, in our eternal bankruptcy, marginalized in all of our sin, hanging out on the outskirts of the field, just hoping to get a little bit of scraps to live on, to be in the presence of God, we're sitting out there and God invites us in because the marginalized are the heartbeat of God. We are the heartbeat of God. You were not his duty to care for. You were his joy. You were his utter joy. So it is not our duty to grade the poor, to evaluate them. It is, our duty is, our joy is to give life to them because everything we have, everything in heaven and on earth belongs to the Lord. And if everything is his, he gives it to us to give. In Ephesians 1, Paul opens his letter with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You say, well, yeah, spiritual blessings. It's easy to give spiritual blessings, right? I'll tell them about Jesus. I don't have to give them anything. That's the best gift I could give. No, this is more than stuff, but it's not less, okay? 
Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is more than stuff. It's not less. Okay, we're not exempt. Jesus gives us everything, including his grace, going above and beyond with the grace of the gospel. Everything is ours then to give in his name and in his power. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you for your heart. For the poor, the destitute, the have-nots. Father, we ask that you would protect our heart from seeing, uh, from seeing ourselves as those who have. Seeing ourselves as over them in some way. Lord, we do not owe anybody anything but it is our joy to share everything that you have given to us because you did not owe it to us. You gave it freely. You gave the life of your own son freely. You gave every blessing in heaven and on earth freely. Everything that is yours, you share with us. Not because we are worthy, but because we are of worth to you. And what an incredible, what an incredible thing to be called by the God of heaven and earth. So Lord, lift us up. Clean out all of our spiritual gunk that would try to talk ourselves back. Well, what if? Well, what if? Well, what if? But, but this and that. Everything that would stop our hands from reaching out to someone in need because we don't feel like they deserve it yet. Father, help us repent. Help us repent of such egregious pride. It is only by your sovereignty and by your mercy that our own circumstances in our lives were not different, that we were not born in a different time or place. Um, but Lord, you have set us in such a time and place as this to bless those around us. So we thank you for Boaz and his willingness to provide for Ruth that would establish the royal line of your own son, Jesus Christ, on this earth. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would do the same among us, your church, your family, that we could see our neighbor, the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, um, the poor, everybody in need around us, and that we would open our palms uh, freely, and that we would have palms open to us to receive as well. In the name of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.